Full disclosure, this is Robin Farzad. You're listening to The Coffee Song by Osibisa, a Ghanaian crossover disco hit in 1976. Why am I playing a disco track from Ghana? Because it has everything to do with our guest, James Harmon. In 1997, after four decades on Wall Street, he was tapped by Bill Clinton to run the U.S. Export-Import Bank. He didn't even know what that did. He thought he was going to be named Commerce Secretary. But alas, Asian economies were about to collapse amid a broader contagion in emerging markets. A year later, his friend Hillary Clinton urged him to visit Sub-Saharan Africa. So he flew into Ghana, and the light bulb went off. You could get good returns and do good for people. By the time he left the Export-Import Bank, he founded the Caravel Fund. Launched in 2004 with $1 million, it's now a billion dollars strong. We're joined today by Mr. Harmon's senior portfolio manager and partner, Chalar Somek. But first, the news. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Our guest today is Jim Harmon. He is CEO and CIO of the Caravel Fund, which is a really successful investment firm that uh, puts money to use in the frontier of emerging markets, places like Ghana, the Philippines, Bangladesh, Indonesia. Jim is joined by his senior portfolio manager and partner, Chalar Somek. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Jim, if you could take us back, actually, to what was going on through your mind when you were tapped in 1997. Um, you know, you spent four decades on Wall Street, and you were tapped to run a firm that you frankly had to call assistance and ask, what does this organization do? What was happening then? Well, the first call came from Al Gore to tell me that the president was going to call and to invite me to take the position as chairman and president of the Exim Bank. And he asked me first if I could give him my email address. And I remember putting him on hold and turning to my assistant and saying, what is our email address here? And that was 1997. So all of you young, thoughtful people who were hearing this might think this sounds crazy, but we really didn't use email a great deal at that time. Um, the second question was, would I be interested in the Exim Bank? And I, I really didn't know much about it. And so, of course, we rushed to try to find out what the Exim Bank does. Uh, it was one of the great fortunate breaks in my life because it would prove to be a very interesting agency at a very critical time. Uh, and we could make a difference in many, many countries, poor countries, where the United States could help them to have the funding to buy what it needs in the way of goods and services and help their economies to grow. Now, this was, this was a period when a lot of the emerging economies were blowing up. You recall Thailand and Indonesia in 1997, and it spread to Latin America. Russia collapses with Boris Yeltsin teetering in 1998. So you were flying around the world nonstop to try to help uh, companies continue to import from the United States. I think the, f the first thing that goes through your mind, by the way, when you get asked is to get through the confirmation proceedings. So to get confirmed, which we did quickly in May, and I went in in June. Within 30 days, the Thai bot collapsed, uh, and suddenly we saw Asia start to implode. Um, and so we, almost the very first month or two, we were dealing with a, a serious crisis in Asia, um, and we were to go over there in a few months later and see what was taking place in Korea and Indonesia and Thailand. Uh, and saw a, a level of panic that we had not expected. And the Exim Bank could play a very important role at that time, which we did. But you also saw some level of promise in Korea among, among I mean, the destruction. I mean, there was true panic in the streets. Uh, you told us before the show that you saw people collecting their gold and their jewelry to support the Korean won, the currency there. Yes. The, the um, Exim Bank had already supported a number of, of loans uh, and, and businesses in Korea at that time. But 
when I arrived there with our team, uh, it was all the banks were insolvent. Um, people were giving their jewelry, taking their own jewelry off and giving it to the government, something you don't see in too many countries. Uh, we, you, you had a feeling that the work ethic was very good, and we had a feeling that the Koreans would, of course, recover. So the question was, how could we help them recover? But they had no funding to buy raw materials or spare parts to keep their business going. Now, fast forward to 1998. Uh, you'd already established yourself on route to stabilizing things uh, with the United States and Southeast Asia. Uh, Hillary Clinton, a friend of yours, urged you to take a look at Sub-Saharan Africa. So you visited Ghana on the northeast coast, on the northwest coast. And uh, tell us about that first experience with the fishing village. Yes. I, I think I said the Exim Bank had not done very much in Sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, I was the first chairman to visit Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and we had done, I think, maybe $40 million in total amount uh, compared to a, a, an agency that which was supporting $15 billion of exports. So this was very small. I went there and saw enormous opportunities in Africa that we could open up markets for U.S. exporters and also help these countries to have the funding they needed to buy what they needed. Yeah, but as a microcosm, it started off with these women who were losing a majority of their uh, catch to spoilage, who needed what was it, a $30,000, $25,000 loan? Yes. We, we happened to have on our schedule a visit of an area where we saw a group of women who were catching fish, and were, uh, we learned that half of the catch were dead by the time they got it to the market, and so obviously they didn't have a solvent business, and so we asked the question about, why don't you use refrigerator trucks, and of course they didn't have the funding to buy it. We came up with a way to buy a used refrigerator truck uh, in, in a way that we would make it available to them, and that, that increased their production very significantly, and they were able to repay the loan back quite quickly. So it was an example of how you could help all over Africa and probably the poorest parts of the world, lots of small and middle-sized businesses. The message there is that um, through a number of uh, means, um, urbanization was one of the factors, but through a number of ways, uh, um, Africa would grow in the future. Some of us felt that way even then, uh, but there was a shortage of funds and there was a shortage of, of expertise to be able to do that. The success today in Africa reflects uh, a number of factors. Uh, now, almost 10 years of growth on the continent of north, somewhat north of 5%. Um, and certainly the human capital has improved a great deal. There are all sorts of opportunities in Africa. A lot of Africans who had left Africa are returning to Africa now for their own purposes to to build wealth. Now, Chalar, you came in. You joined uh, Caravel when? Um, I joined Caravel uh, at the end of 2008. Now, when we look at the numbers going back to inception, I mentioned this earlier, but from its start in October 2004, uh, right till April, April 2014, Caravel Fund is up 275%. You compare that to emerging markets, which have had a pretty mean decade, up 168%. And the United States is represented by the Standard & Poor's 500 Index, up 105%. So if you step back from all this during a period of volatility where we had uh, the global financial crisis and um, even a period you know, shortly after 9-11 where uh, Western economies have been struggling and it was thought to be the, the period of the emerging economies, the ones really on the bleeding edge, if you talk about the, the Colombias and the Perus and the Vietnams of the world, have had a spectacular decade. I, I, would, I would guess to say that many Americans don't realize this. I, I would guess so, yes. Uh, you know, I, I think at Caravel what we try to do is basically to focus on the next generation growth markets. And these are markets that probably not being talked about as much as BRIC, because BRIC, BRIC is, is Brazil, Brazil, Russia, India, Russia, India, and China, because they're, they're, they're large, large countries with large populations, 
but the dynamics there is there you know are not as uh, as positive as smaller emerging markets where you know you have demographics tailwinds you have you know economies growing at 5 6 7% but also the markets are not really followed by the westerners and investors you know fundamentally investors as much as brick we talk about places like the philippines indonesia peru exactly peru romania romania kazakhstan for example in central asia we don't hear much about kazakhstan except you know maybe some jokes and movies and um <laughs> but but also you know countries like uh, in in uh, you know central america or i would also include in that bucket you know some of the sub saharan and northern african countries that have been only on the headlines as negative news but even in those risky places i think you can find attractive value type of investments so is the idea jim that risk writ large is understood or overrated or people generally think that these are the basket cases of the world and when you drill down you're telling me that in fact there's less volatility and they're less prone to collapse if the if if the euro collapses or if you have a contagion emanating from greece or lehman brothers yes i think there's been a lot of education now in the last five to eight years on the emerging and on the frontier. Certainly when we launched Caravel, that was clearly the case. None, none of the institutions wanted to think about investing in these countries. And there was a fear of corruption. There was a fear of volatility. There was a fear of, of numbers weren't accurate. You couldn't get information to make your investment decision. I think we've come a long way now. I think most people now realize that the kind of information that we see when we look to make an investment is every bit as good as the information we look at when you're investing in the United States or in Europe. So massive improvement of information flow but also a greater recognition by institutional investors that there's opportunities in these countries. Now the big center of gravity, the big Jupiter in the solar system of developing economies is obviously China as the voracious consumer, the the bid on the margin for every incremental barrel of oil or 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 pack of copper. Aren't these stories only as good as China is and and China being right now faced with so much skepticism that it can't grow at 7% forever, Chalar? China is definitely important and and obviously the biggest risk to emerging markets, not only emerging markets but developed market investors is a hard landing, a major hard landing and slowdown in China. There's direct and indirect links of, you know, pretty much all countries to China now because as we pointed out, it's, you know, the center of the solar system, not only for emerging markets but also for developed markets. Uh, however, you know, we also think that the scenario of a major hard landing or slowdown is is still quite a remote scenario, given the resources and reserves and uh, and and you know some people argue that China is actually the government is rich, maybe the people are poor, but the government has the means to control the economy to kind of engineer a soft landing. And assuming that soft landing happens, you know, all the emerging countries that we cover, there is a pretty positive scenario for those of emerging countries that have positive demographics, younger population, um and and those countries also which uh, have governments who are reform oriented orientation, um have pretty positive prospects, po- positive long-term structural story. Um I guess you know from a, an active management perspective as you know we we're, we're a fund management company and you know we we are actively managing our risks we try to avoid to put you know all our countries we follow roughly 30 to 40 countries and we try to avoid you know to clever, basically put together clever acronym and and we try to Uh, differentiate the risks and the opportunities country by country sector by sector stock by stock so it's uh, it's easy to put everything into one basket saying brick or beyond brick or frontier uh, but it's it's important that you know each country has different dynamics different risks different opportunities you know we take for example 
uh, Columbia, which I visited in, in uh, 2007, Jim, at your behest. Uh, very few people remember that Columbia was very nearly a failed state in 2002 with the uh, FARC at the gates of Bogota. Now you, you fast forward a, a bit over a decade later, and it's one of the most envied economies of South America. You can't get a hotel room in Medellin. Um, everybody, all these bankers seem to use these Colombian multinationals as the kind of the benchmark for South American valuations, even above Brazil and Chile. And it just shows you how how rapidly, whiplashingly things can change in, in emerging market time. I think that's true. I think Chaler found various different um, countries which were un- about to make reforms. Philippines is a very good illustration of that, where he saw a new leadership coming in, and that leadership would al- would be anti-corruption and would be would do all the right things from what we consider the rule of law. Um, that led to a significant flow of new investment in the Philippines, and the markets have done very well. So where we can anticipate change taking place at the top. Um, it's very helpful to us in deciding where we're going to invest. Now, Chalar, I mentioned this. We're on the 25th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square crackdown and massacre. And it's obviously uh, no one in China can read about this now. No one can talk about it. No one can take pictures in Tiananmen Square. What if history had happened differently in your mind and the students had prevailed? Uh, would China have been able to be that that strong, centrally commanded economic juggernaut? Or would, would it really... I mean, what I'm trying to say is that would China... Uh, this. China democratically, truly democratically, could not have achieved what it did. I, I think we could, you know, we can probably run some simulations around all different scenarios, but it's very, very hard to, you know, predict the outcome of these scenarios and, and you know, go back in time. All I can say is that maybe the central approach to China's problems for the past decade um, has worked so far. But the country still has major challenges, you know, to kind of rebalance its economy from fixed asset growth, investment-driven type of, um, you know, um, economy to a more consumption-driven economy. And it never is easy to uh, change a giant, you know, economy like China um, over a couple of years. It's going to take another probably decade to rebalance this economy. And there's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be disappointments along the way. Um, I would say that... Uh, from an investor's perspective, democracy doesn't necessarily mean returns either. There's no you know, high correlation between the two. And the best example you could take, for example, a country like Thailand. Uh, we just saw a military coup recently. I was actually uh, you know, asked about whether the military coup will lead to a market collapse. And, and my and Thailand answer, is a chunk of your portfolio. It's seven percent. Yes, it's a big exposure, and and obviously, as you know, we're long-term investors, we're contrarian investors, uh, but but the market doesn't like uncertainty. Um, up until the military coup, there was a lot of uncertainty, you know, back and forth between different political parties. There was a deadlock in terms of decision making. And when the military coup happened, at least, uh, you know, some of the uncertainties have, uh, have, have, have disappeared. And the market took this as not a negative, but as, as more of a neutral to positive, you know, kind of uh, outcome. Uh, so, so, you know, similar to China, if China, there is social instability, uh, problems, uprisings, that would be a very negative, uh, and that could be an outcome, you know, driven by a hard landing. But we we, we see this as, as as more of a remote type of po- possibility. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking all things frontier markets. Stay with us. Support for this program was provided by the Martin Agency, headquartered in Richmond, Virginia. The Martin Agency has consistently been ranked among the top advertising firms by national media and industry leaders alike.
Jim, you talk about the Philippines here, and now it's almost 6 or 7% of your portfolio. That's another country that has always been derided as a kind of a laughing stock. It could never get its act together. There was always corruption. It was always looked at as kind of a Bush League economy in Asia. Uh, you have this great anecdote when you were chairman of XM Bank that <laughs> involved the, the actual seizure of, of, of planes on the West Coast. And could you tell us what happened and when? Yeah, I don't usually go around discussing these stories like that. It's not one of the things I want to be remembered for. However, when I was at the Exim Bank, uh, we we had a disagreement with the Philippines government on aircraft that was had been we had financed for the Philippines Airlines to buy um, was Bo- Boeing aircraft, and uh, this disagreement led to the fact that we had to we had to seize the airplane, um, which I had never had experience like that. So the U.S. Marshals early in the morning, when the Philippines plane landed in San Francisco, went to the plane, and passengers were removed, and the equipment was taken and flown to Arizona, where it sat on the desert to be taken care of. You can imagine that the ambassador from the United States to the Philippines, who was not informed that this would take place, called me that morning and had some choice words to say to me about not being informed, because this was headline news in the Philippines. Now, to fast forward, we have become very friendly with the Philippines since then in a lot of ways. One, even at Exim, we made up for that. We were able to settle the disagreement. They got the equipment back. Um, and the Philippines, I, I, I don't think of it as a, a basket, as you refer to it. I think the Philippines has made some very significant progress. Um, and I actually asked Chowler now to make a comment, too, because he was the one who really spotted the change coming in the Philippines, which was critical. Was it a cement company you were invested in there, a construction company? We were invested in a construction company, but it was a conglomerate that had construction business. They also had uh, some other businesses you know, catering to consumers. So it was pretty much a blanket exposure to the economy. And and watch what happens when you put a Jollibee up in uh, Queens or Los Angeles. <laughs> Everybody lines up for the fast food there. It was in Anthony Bourdain's first episode. This is a, a, a for those of you not familiar with it, it's, it's Filipino junk food that is uh, wildly popular with the hipster set. Well, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking all things frontier markets. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Today, we're talking all things frontier markets with prominent frontiersmen Jim Harmon and Chalar Somek of the Caravel Fund in New York, which went from being $1 million large in 2004 to nearly being a $1 billion large today on a huge boom in these bleeding-edge emerging economies. Uh, Jim, I wanted to come back briefly to uh, this idea of, and, and Chalar mentioned it earlier, that democracy is not directly proportional with investing returns, that at some degree, you kind of have to be mercenary. With with, with some things like Thailand, for example, uh, what works there is predictability with a strong man in charge that at least that, that takes out uh, this change of regime risk if you're going to invest in a company going out three to five years. How do you sleep at night knowing that that's something that you, you, you have to look for and invest in? Uh, we sleep very well at night uh, because we believe we're extremely well diversified in some 20-odd countries and with a lot of different sectors. And we know the companies very well. And we know the countries very well. Um, there's always a risk, of course, in, in a lot of different countries. Uh, but I come back to what you said before, where there is some political stability – Political stability is critical that leads to economic stability. And when you have economic stability, you, you can evaluate investment opportunities and show good returns. Now, Chalar, you talk about the super, the bleeding edge of the bleeding edge of emerging and frontier economies right now. 
the example that Jim shared with the airlines and, and the Philippines, something akin to that happened last year with Argentina and having one of its frigates seized by hedge fund managers that are still ticked off about its 2002 debt restructuring. Um, Argentina, many have argued, has regressed from being a darling emerging market to being a frontier economy that many would not touch with a 10-foot pole. Ditto uh, Zimbabwe. You guys are invested in Zimbabwe. How is that How is that possible? How do you take for granted anything there? Um, it's really a, uh, you know, I would say an extraordinary case because, you know, the company that we invested in Zimbabwe has nothing to do with the government, number one, including their energy needs, their logistical needs. They're completely independent. And secondly, it's a company that, uh, you know, it's it's a case study because it's very high cash flow generation, no debt, what do they do? net cash. It's a brewery. Uh, it's a global brewery, you know, positioned in Zimbabwe and, and has been, uh, you know, has basically the most dominant franchise and the highest market share. It's almost uh, a duopolistic market. So you are at heart like an arbitrageur. You saw an opportunity there. There is no currency risk, right? They're using dollars. It's Exactly. It's a dollar-based economy. And, and, and this is a case almost like a real option in, you know, finance. If and when Zimbabwe changes and the regime changes and the economy gets better, this is a home run. And this is a long-term kind of story. And it's positioned, we're positioned accordingly. This is not a major exposure in our portfolio, but it's small, tiny exposure in case that possibility exists and there's a re-rating in the stock. It's like nitroglycerin to kind of turbocharge. It's, <laughs> exactly. a, it's, a, it's a deep out-of-the-money option. Exactly. Really, I can't understand that because you have a, a, an unstable person in charge there. You have you know wheelbarrow hyperinflation, but you are cordoned off from all these things by investing what in a in a in a uh, company a there company that's that dollarized that invests private, in other pricing countries. Pricing power has pricing power and and very high cash flow generation and has no debt, no financial risk. Uh, I think in this case, if Zimbabwe was not a dollarized economy, obviously it would have been a much harder you know, investment case. But because it's a dollarized economy, the economy pretty much runs you know, on cash. There's no debt, no possibility for Zimbabwe to go out and you know, borrow. Uh, it gives us a little bit more comfort. But it's a very you know, extraordinary case, I guess, you know, among other things that we invest in. Now, Jim Harmon, talk about Egypt, because in addition to your responsibility at Caravelle, you are chairman of the Egyptian American Enterprise Fund. And obviously, there's been a tremendous amount of volatility there. There was great promise when Egypt had its revolution. Was it to start 2010? And then subsequent military coup and now landslide election for a, a strong man. Um, what What is the promise there? I think there's a significant promise there. There's been very little foreign direct investment coming into Egypt after the last three years crisis. Um, and there's enormous needs, both from a consumption point of view as well as from an industrial point of view. Um, the U.S. government decided to form the first enterprise fund to invest in Egypt um, after some 20-odd years. There were earlier enterprise formed under Bush 1 back in 1991, 1992 for Eastern Europe. And those, some uh, one $2 billion was invested in some um, 17, 18 different countries. And the United States got back its funds over a period of time. So they decided to go forward and do the same thing in Egypt to help the private sector to grow and to help create jobs, mostly focused on small and middle-sized enterprises. So we have been studying Egypt now for two years, uh, going back and forth. Uh, and with 
the current leadership, what I would call this military leadership, where there's some stability now, um, we see f- foreign investment starting to come back. In fact, Egypt had its first initial public offering only about a month ago. There was so much demand for it that it went to a Im- significant immediate pre- premium. It was a cement business. So we are starting to see flow of funds back into Egypt. It has a long way to go. But our task is to invest in a way that we could help create jobs in Egypt and so that it's going to be something more than just the American Enterprise Fund. We're inviting other Arab countries and European countries to join the United States in this enterprise fund. Notably, the biggest single country waiting in your portfolio is Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim democracy in the world. The, the, the question, the corollary on that is, is Arab democracy, true democracy possible when you look at the example of Egypt? So something I've often said, we have learned that leadership is critical. If you have leadership, you will show good growth. And Indonesia, if you go back to my days at Exim Bank, was the one country which actually we had corruption issues with. And so beginning when we got out, and we, Indonesia got for, fortunate in leadership changes, which led to significant growth in Indonesia for the last eight or nine years. Um, I think if if, uh, if you look into other countries where the leadership is doing the right thing, we can discuss this later, um, you, you, will, you will have a lot of foreign direct investment follow in. Uh, I'm hoping that the Egyptian situation will start to stabilize and the economy will attract foreign investment and the leadership may make reforms which will lead to foreign, foreign, greater foreign investment. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We were joined by James Harmon and Chalar Somik of the Caravel Fund, which invests in frontier and emerging markets. Uh, Thank you so much. When we come back, we're going to talk Nigeria and Sub-Saharan Africa. Stay with us. This program is made possible with support from Virginia Commonwealth University. Located in Richmond, Virginia, VCU is a premier public research university focused on academic success. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined today by Jim Harmon of the Caravel Fund, which invests in the frontier of emerging markets. And joining us as well is Adoro Doji. She heads News Deeply and is former co-host of The Takeaway, which you might remember from WNYC New York. And Jim has a deputy, a partner at Caravel, and a deputy portfolio manager, Jamie O'Dell, who specializes in Africa. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Adora, we want to talk about Nigeria specifically here because Nigeria is such a huge component in the Frontier Index. It's something that the Caravel Fund invests in, and yet it's such a walking, living, breathing paradox, especially when you look at the situation with Boko Haram and the girls who were just abducted. Uh, You wrote an essay recently. This is not the Nigeria I know, if you let me read from it. The 276 girls ferociously abducted in Nigeria are heavy on my mind. It's not lost on me. It could have been me. I attended an all-girls boarding high school my sophomore year in northern Nigeria, not far from where the girls were taken. I know these girls figuratively. They probably look a lot like the mixed ethnicities of my classmates from all over the country. When I went to school, we fully expected to make it home that evening, which is exactly my experience today when I put my daughter on the bus every morning to a New York City suburban elementary school. That really resounded with so many people that read it. And when we step back from it and say, how can an emerging market investor, for as cold-eyed as they might be, look at Nigeria as such a promising member of sub-Saharan Africa, the biggest economy of sub-Saharan Africa, but also arguably on the brink of being a failed state? Well, I think you have to be very careful. And one of the things that I talk about in that article is that when you think of Boko Haram or any of the other incidences of violence that continue there, it's no more representative of Nigeria as than is Timothy McVeigh of the United States. 
So there is much more to Nigeria that is happening in very good ways, both in terms of the economy and education and other things that provide greater context for these other violence, the vicious violence that does continue. And certainly there are ethnic tensions. And I don't I'm not trying to look at the country through rose-colored glasses. I just think that we need uh, some context and balance in terms of all of the things that are going on. I mean, you've been to Lagos. It's a barely functioning place. On the one hand, there's tremendous poverty, people living under bridges, so many people living for under a dollar a day. But there was also a stat in recent years, the stock boom there was so pungent that more people had brokerage accounts than checking accounts. <laughs> I mean, it's a place of paradoxes. Is a George Packer wrote a wonderful essay in The New Yorker several years ago on the megalopolis, right? And here's a city that was designed for 13 million people and 22, 23 million people are living in it. There's raw sewage everywhere. Traffic doesn't work. Infrastructure is badly lacking. Is this any place for a self-respecting Western investor to be in? Well, I would say yes. I'm not investing myself in Nigeria, but I, I, I think it's worth noting, as Jim has talked about a lot, is that it's worth paying attention not just to the dysfunction, but also the possibility. And for that certain type of investor who is interested in, uh, you know, a certain kind of return that's potentially possible. I shouldn't even be speaking to the dollars because that's not my expertise. But I think that the point is Lagos does work. It doesn't work in your most traditional way. And yes, there are major infrastructure problems. But that doesn't mean that has to last forever. As we've talked about, and as you've talked about in your programming, that in very short periods of time, you can see all sorts of changes if the leadership is there. Part of what I've also talked about and written about is the lack of leadership in Nigeria right now as we see it. Now, Jamie, don't you have to, as part of your investment committee prerequisites when you're investing in a country or a company, have to be able to take for granted some modicum of rule of law or that the military can protect the people or that uh, things will operate on time plus or minus? And how, how is it that you, you feel you have a, a, a worthy uh, government, a counterparty of that in, in Nigeria? Well, I think when we're thinking about investing in, in a place like Nigeria, uh, you do have to understand the context. You have to understand the limitations from a rule of law um, and from a governance perspective. Uh, but as long as you feel like you have that margin of safety, that the uh, risk that you're taking is asymmetric, and therefore that the, re the re returns that you can achieve um, significantly outweigh the, uh, the, the risk that you're taking, then um, you know, we come, can come to a conclusion that, that, um, that there are attractive investment ideas in, in Nigeria. And that comes to a central tenet, Jim, of, of frontier market investing, that you guys have been betting over the better part of a decade that these risks are overrated, they're overblown. The Western perception of failed state or impending civil war, that the chances of that actually happening are, are not likely. Yes. Among the myths that exist, uh, people think we can't get any kind of financial information. What kind of accounting reports do you get from the frontier world or from Africa, for example? That's very wrong. The information we get is every bit as good as the information we get in the United States or we get in Western Europe. Uh, second question is what kind of human capital? Who's managing these companies? Where did they study? And so forth and so on. We find many of the leadership in the business community has had a lot of experience in the States or and in, in the UK. So they're every bit as good as the management that we see in the United States. So flow of information is just as good. The, the, the quality of the human capital is just as good. So we, that has not been a problem. In fact, over a 10-year period of time, I can't remember one case where there was a corruption issue where we made an investment. No Enrons and no Citicorps and none of the crises that we've had in the Western world. So our experience has been 
excellent in terms of the quality of the investments that we have made. That doesn't mean we've always been right in terms of other factors. Uh, I, I remind you again also that one in eight people in the world live in Africa. Uh, and uh, I might come back to Nigeria. One in five Africans live in Nigeria. So this is a large, important country with a GDP over 500 billion dollars. So it's a very significant country. And where there are problems or challenges, usually we find opportunities because that's where you can make investment decisions. Now, sometimes too much investment flows in and pushes prices to a level that frightens us. So we move out at that time. And and to put that in context, you're talking, you know, when Apple right now, I see Apple's market capitalization is $550 billion. I think all of sub-Saharan Africa, including Nigeria, has a market cap of what, $100, $150 billion? That that shows you that these are not exactly primed to take a lot of hot money, that that could be a destabilizing factor. But we'll talk more about that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking all things frontier markets today and in, uh, in this slot, specifically sub-Saharan Africa and Nigeria, the paradox of Nigeria, how you can have so much promise and growth in a country that's so fragile and always on the brink of some conflagration of some sorts. And Adora Doji, uh, specifically, I mean, this might be a, a real big tail risk, but the provocations of Boko Haram, suppose... Uh, something so audacious and horrific were to happen, and and you've had precedent for this before in Nigeria, that Christians take to the streets and start exacting revenge on Muslim people willy-nilly. You imagine a place like Lagos. How, if the military could not have protected these uh, young schoolgirls, could the military contain a, a civil war type situation like that? I mean, this is a you know, this is an existential almost question, and I think Jamie alluded to this. We specialize in which the meaning is, of life on this well, show. You know, the issue is that you have this country where you have three major ethnic groups, Igbos, Hausas, and Yorubas, who speak different languages, not to mention the other 250 ethnic groups, who then speak another 500 different languages. Fundamentally, they have different perspectives. They have different worldviews. How do you get those people to work together on anything? So this, since 1960, we also have to remember that Nigeria is a young country, it gained its independence in 1960. So we're talking about a country that is 50 plus years old, very young, and you put that on top of these existing and centuries old differences of how you look at the world, and then you say, get along and function as a society in the midst of so much money coming from the oil, which was incidentally discovered about the time it supposedly gained its political independence and quote-unquote economic independence. It was around 1959, I think, when oil was discovered. No, but that's been a blessing and a curse, obviously. It's caused this the huge uprising in the south in the Niger Delta where the oil is, where um, locals say, rightfully so, that the likes of Shell and, you know, Totalfina and any have, have uh, ruined our standard of living. We live in a subsistence community where fishing and farming is important and these have really despoiled our lands. Um, that's that's one, you know, traditional fight unto itself in the south. But now you talk about the north being a huge headache for uh, the government, which has always been kind of swapping between, there's always been this unwritten rule that there will be a Christian president in office and then a Muslim person in office. And everything, m- my point is, is that things are so fragile there to step back from it and say, this is arguably the most important economy in sub-Saharan Africa. Isn't that a, a terrifying thought? 
I mean, I think it's just complicated, I guess, because I've lived with this my whole life, being half Nigerian and understanding that there were these terrific tensions that could bubble up, but there's also this terrific and overwhelming possibility. And so, you know, you speak of the of the oil. Of course, there is tremendous issues and challenges, obstacles, incredible corruption and so on and so forth. But from a macro sense, I think it's important in the landscape of things to remember it also speaks to the possibilities of what is possible, as opposed to if they didn't have oil, what would then be the ideal or be possible? Now, by way of anecdote, Jamie, um, when, when Jim Harmon urged me to visit Nigeria after, right before I went to Ghana um, for my tour of Sub-Saharan Africa, for Business Week back in the day, I remember it took me two hours to get from my airport to hotel in Victoria Island, which should something only have taken 20 minutes. But the traffic was so terrible and um, you know, being harassed by people. Uh, we got uh, mugged along the way, I have to say, by very friendly muggers. They were very nice to me. It was flattering. that I ended up paying them something like $3, so it was charming. Uh, but um, and then when I got to my hotel room, I pretty much had to bribe the, the front desk person to keep my reservation. There's such a shortage of hotel rooms in Victoria. And this is after our car had to bribe people at the outset in the airport just to make it onto the main highway. And that was my welcome to Nigeria. But I was told by the driver that at any point, if you got out into one of these crowded highways and lifted your your arm with uh, 10 iPods, they would sell out for 500 bucks a piece in five minutes. Speak to that kind of paradox. Yeah, no, I think it... Um... Lagos is first of all I recommend landing on a Sunday afternoon. You can you can get to VI in about 15 or 20 minutes. It's it's the rush hour that'll that'll kill you. Um and there's no question that uh that corruption is a is a huge problem uh at the lowest scale because wages are are so um so modest. Um and then at the larger scale where you have uh you have reports that that approximately 20 billion dollars a year um is being is being stolen from the uh, from the oil sector. I mean put put that in context 20 billion dollars a year where a majority of this country lives on less than a dollar a day. Right. And you know you sit in in meetings and uh the power goes out and nobody nobody blinks you'll be sitting in a in a pitch black um conference room. Uh That's why everybody people, has a generator. Everyone's got a generator and it will kick on in in a in a couple of seconds. Um people are used to the operating environment and I think that's one of the the, the things that we've come to appreciate is that both local indigenous companies um, as well as successful foreign companies, not just in the oil sector, but in the, uh, but in the um, consumer space and the banking space, um, companies like GE, they've been able to, uh, you know, ev- evaluate the risk, but figure out how to navigate these challenges and, um, and, uh, and get around the issues of corruption. Um, there is, I think, you know, a challenge for many foreign investors, but there is a channel that, uh, that I think you can get through. Um, and I think the larger and, and stronger and, and, more most, and the more backbone um, a, a company has, the more successful they are at combating uh, that, that, uh, that challenge. Um, and I think that that channel is getting wider. So um, where it might have been very difficult five or ten years ago to get things done, uh, to get permitting, to, to develop um, a factory, to, to get power, et cetera. Today, I think um, for a lot of companies, they're finding that the operating environment, for all of the horror stories you still hear, um, it really has improved a lot. And, you know, you, you, did, you did mention the, the challenge of that drive from, from, uh, from the airport to, to Lagos. Um, five years ago, I would never, you know, I'd sit there quietly in my, my car, um, I wouldn't be doing anything. Today, I feel comfortable being on my iPhone, being on my iPad uh, as you drive. 
Um, so for me, the security situation has improved quite considerably uh, under the under the uh, you know under the the opposition party that's running Lego State. I've got to introduce you to these muggers who I met. They're, they're gentlemen. They were area boys. Uh, there's the name of their gang. But um, anyway, it's part of the charm of the country. Nigeria, by the way, has uh, Africa's wealthiest. Uh, person in uh, Aliko Dangote. He's a commodities investor who owns the Dangote Group. He's worth $25 billion. And he recently gave an interview. He says in short order, he expects to be worth twice that amount. So just to give you an idea of uh, a lot of the money that's sloshing around there, these multinationals that want to be their banking interests. Uh, Jim, I wanted to, to, to spin it back to another country on the opposite uh, side of Africa that you've had uh, a positive experience with, namely in Rwanda. And uh, this was a cautionary tale. This was obviously a horrific tale back in 1994 and a failed state which has managed to uh, bridge and heal the divides at least long enough to run a functioning uh, democracy and attract uh, foreign direct investment. Could you comment on that? Yes. It comes back to a question. I may have given you a comment before on leadership. I think President Kagame has done a superb job. I know there's criticism of some of the things he's done. Uh, relative to his opposition. Uh, but we have seen Rwanda make e extraordinary progress. You can walk down the street in Rwanda at 1 or 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and feel totally safe. People help you. People care about the country. He has turned this around. There is no country that has more women in their parliament than Rwanda does. Uh, I am in am overwhelmed by what I see as the progress that Kagame has achieved in Rwanda. When you compare that with our own experience in, let's say, uh, Zimbabwe, it's just night and day. If I could clone Kagame to be placed in other countries in Africa, the progress that Africa would make would be extraordinary. He, he has just done just a terrific job. But we invested in, in Rwanda, and uh, the first thing was in a brewery company, went public. We made a very significant return on our money. Um, then a, a bank went public. So the public offering opportunities will present opportunities for other investors. Uh, but I, I would see Rwanda continue to make progress. It is a, Of course, so many people have followed Rwanda and followed what he has done. But I, I, I'm delighted every time he gets an honorary degree somewhere, every time people see what he has achieved there because it shows what could be done throughout all of sub-Saharan Africa. Now, Jamie, on a country like Rwanda, if you could give us some context, how do you even place an order there? Suppose you find an interesting investment. Suppose it makes your short list. Who do you call? What are the mechanics involved in this? I, if you can walk our listeners through, I, I don't know, currency exchanges, and then I ostensibly you're calling someone in London or Amsterdam. How big is the market in Rwanda. I think you'd be surprised by how far uh, a country like Rwanda has has come with respect to this. So it's a small market, as Jim said. There are actually only are only two stocks listed, but two stocks. In terms of trading, it's it's not too. It you know they're on um, Bloomberg, so you can place your orders electronically. Um, there's there's not a huge amount of depth, obviously, but uh, but it's no different really from transacting anywhere in the world. Wait, these are two, what are these two companies? So it's Bank of Kigali and it's uh, Berlirwa, which is a subsidiary of Heineken. A subsidiary of Heineken. So That's are right. you getting yeah. some sort of um, in kind kind of Western backing from something? You're you're investing in what is it? Almost like an ADR of Heineken? No, it's the locally list. It's the locally. Um, Listed uh, entity. It's 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 a separate company. Um, I don't remember the exact percentage of 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 the company that that uh, Heineken owns, but um, but it is a, a, a Rwandan firm, and uh, and uh, it's also a dominant franchise, similar to the example that Chalar provided in uh, in Zimbabwe. Um, 
you know, counterfactually, if somebody were to suddenly say a client of yours that I really like this Rwanda story, was really sold on on what Jim was telling us in the presentation, you really couldn't put all that much money to work there, enough to move the needle on your broader fund. It would be difficult to put a lot of money to work, but that's changing. You know, we're seeing new uh, we're seeing new IPOs uh, coming out um, of countries in countries like Rwanda. Uh, every day. In fact, um, we just saw Lafarge, uh, the, the global cement company, merge their South African and their Nigerian entities together, and they're listing it and in Nigeria, which is you know something that probably 10 years ago would have ended up on the South African exchange. They've decided that there's more liquidity, more depth, more investor appetite for, for that entity um, in Nigeria. What do you think needs to happen to hit that saturation point? Because both you, Jamie, and Jim have spoken to this idea that you think in the short term and medium you know, future that there are real possibilities of explosive would be my word, not yours, but real growth. What do you think needs to happen for that to be the result? I, I think uh, there's some major transformational projects that are important for Africa. For example, a north-south road. If you, 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 there is no way you can drive from Nigeria to South Africa. But they've talked a lot about a north-south road. That that road, if it existed, would increase uh, all sorts of, uh, of of delivery of products and services in a very effective way. Someday will happen. The problem is no one country wants to finance it, so you have to get a developer who works with a number of countries. It needs the World Bank. World Bank has been studying this. The G20 has been studying this, but it's an example of a, of a transformational project. The same thing you could say about a power project that they're working on now that could supply power to a number of countries. So if those projects got off the will, – they will get off the ground someday. When they do, that will sustain the growth that we've had in Africa. That's a big-picture answer. But if you just take what, what Kagame has done with Rwanda, you can duplicate that in other countries. It's easily due. To his credit, I remember when I was there and he said, do you want to go see our stock exchange? I mean, what amounted to a, one room with paper all over and two people sitting there. I thought, coming from the New York Stock Exchange, <laughs> it, I didn't recognize it as actually effectively. Why didn't they use the Kenyan Stock Exchange, which is the country next to him, which could offered to do it. They wanted to create their own experience. And in creating their own experience, they had this initial public offering, which was very successful. I think it's at least doubled or maybe tripled even since it came, this initial public offering. But the bank has done very well. There will be other private equity investors who will go who are going in now into Rwanda, which will create publicly owned companies. As I said, Rwanda will be very successful. I have no doubt about that. And people will make money investing. The way I would like to scale up all of Africa by cloning Mr. Kagame. That means helping other leaders to do the same thing. Now, interestingly enough, when we talk about the centers of economic gravity, you have South Africa, which a lot of people argue is on the wane, uh, that the ANC there is getting along in the tooth and, and maybe is more corrupt than other people would want it to be. And Nigeria up way far away on the on the left coast there. And I find it's always interesting in traveling in sub-Saharan Africa that everybody seems to blame the Nigerians for their <laughs> for their woes. Like it's the Nigerians problem. You know, as they say they say Joe Berg's the most dangerous 
city now in sub-Saharan Africa, Johannesburg, and they say, oh, because there are too many Nigerians here. But I find that that's a grudging way of saying those those Nigerians really have, uh, you know, the animal spirits of commerce figured out, or we've really ceded the mantle of leadership to them. I mean, that, that I think, speaks to, Jim, the difficulty of building this, this road from north to south and that you have uh, two countries which are really going their separate ways. I think what Jamie said before is very important. The merger of these two companies, Nigeria and South Africa, and, and leaving it with a domicile in Nigeria would not have happened 10 years ago. So I think Nigeria is making more progress than we've indicated so far in, in this discussion. South Africa, yes, it has some problems, but it is, we think of it as a developed country. So we, we put them almost in the bricks. We've never invested in South Africa because it is so developed. We've picked more of the developing countries. But I think the rest of Africa is going to catch up. I, you know, I think the infrastructure and the power issues are critical. Nigeria is actually making tremendous pro progress on that front. So they've effectively privatized over the past year most of their generation and distribution assets. They've outsourced the management of their transmission assets. This is on the electricity side, obviously, uh, to Manitoba Power out of Canada. So, um, so there is a real effort to improve the power situation there, um, and I think that will be a major, a major driver of, of, of growth going forward. And I think from a leadership perspective, um, I'm not a political expert, uh, but I do believe that over the past five or ten years, you are seeing a significant evolution in the level of civil discourse within Nigeria about, uh, about um, leadership and about politics. You have finally a, a true opposition party that's come to the fore over the past year, and they've actually been able to successfully poach leaders from, from, the, uh, from the incumbent party uh, because they do offer a different vision for the, for, for the nation. So um, whether or not they'll be successful in the next round of elections in 2014, or 2015 rather, uh, I think that's unclear. But um, people care about politics, and they actually think that the democratic process can work today in Nigeria, I think, in a way that they may not have believed it could have worked five or 10 years ago. And I just want to add a small point, just to coattail what you said, Jamie, is that ironically, Boko Haram has ignited civil discussion in a way I don't think I would have guessed, in that most Nigerians, my experience and from what I'm reading and hearing on, from on the ground, is that it, there's almost a unifying factor around what they're doing and you know what they stand for. So in this odd way, I've just been party to conversations that I just, amongst friends of different ethnic groups who are all talking and talking to one another, not just here in the United States, but also in Nigeria. I don't know if you've observed or witnessed or heard some of that, but there is an interesting juxtaposition, another paradox, as you, as you might say. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think this has this is sort of the starkest example yet of how ineffective the leadership has been in, in Nigeria and how little control they have over the Boko Haram situation and, for that matter, over the whole northeastern part of the country. And I think um, that, uh, you know, they, they feel that that is rooted in the transparency and, and corruption and, and governance issues that have plagued the country for, for many years. And I think this is now finally uh, beginning to uh, be recognized as something that, that really will be holding the country back if it's, not, if it's not resolved, if it's not changed. And I think there's much more discussion today than there was a few years ago about oil theft. There's a v very free and active and, uh, and vocal press 
um, in media in, in Nigeria that's brought a lot of these, um, these issues to, to the fore. It doesn't always mean that there are prosecutions. It doesn't always mean that things change. But that process takes time. I think we're seeing some really positive signals. It's a start. And on that hopeful note, <laughs> we were joined today by Jamie O'Dell and James Harmon of the Caravel Fund and Adora Udoji, who heads up News Deeply, and she's a former co-host of The Takeaway and a Nigeriologist as of late. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Thanks very much. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, back next week. Our program today was recorded at NPR's New York Bureau. Neil Rauch is our engineer. Special thanks to the Martin Agency and Virginia Commonwealth University for their support. Check out our website, fulldiscloseradio.com, and find us on Twitter at FullDRadio. The executive producer of Full Disclosure is Jeffrey Bennett. I'm Robin Farzad.